Welcome to the Park Life Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Croker. Join me on a deep dive into the lives of people dedicated to the business of fun. You'll find me at parklifestories at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Welcome along to episode 46 of Park Life. Settle in. This is quite a ride. Graham Drake has had a full and fascinating life both in and out of theme parks. Marine mammal training at SeaWorld, tiger handling at DreamWorld, former show announcer, professional dancer, bodybuilder and personal trainer. And that is all just the start of it. There's no doubt you're going to enjoy getting to know Graham Drake. Dolphin trainer, sea lion trainer, tiger handler, polar bear keeper, carer. Mm -hmm. Then dancer, hairdresser, actor. actor bodybuilder, personal trainer, there's a lot there. And just from a theme park perspective here on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia, you have had a very unique, singular career. You've worked across SeaWorld, Warner Brothers Movie World, Dream World, and reinvented yourself on multiple occasions. And I really want to dig into that because I think people will find it fascinating, unlike uh, anything we've, we've probably heard to that degree in the, in the series. Can we, can we jump back into time when, when you were much younger? Did you have a sense of where you might be or what you might do? No, I didn't. I was just, uh, I, was a, I was born on the Gold Coast. And I, from this day one, when I uh, started school, like in grade one, I, we lived out West Burley, which was the country in those days. My father started, came here in the 50s. In fact, my father was born in 1914. So he'd be over 100 and something years old now. So very different, 20 years older than my mum. So a very different environment. My mum basically had five kids. And when I was very young, at like one year old, my dad had a car accident, broke his neck in three places. So he was an invalid pensioner. But so I, I, all I can remember is we didn't have a toilet in our house. We used to have an outhouse and all that kind of thing. So when I arrived at school, I felt very, uh, never really interacted with kids. You know, now everyone goes to kindy and all that. So from day one of school, I didn't feel like I fit in. It was very awkward for me and it didn't work. Over the years, uh, when I went to high school, pretty much the same. So I didn't have a direction in life. But one thing I did have is my father used to be a hairdresser. He had hairdressing salons on the Gold Coast. And when he had that car accident, he lost everything. So he was in hospital for months when my mum was with, there with five, four kids, you know. Anyway, so I uh, left school to be a hairdresser, uh, very young, about 16. I got into my second year of hairdressing. I'd moved from John LaCourt to a salon in Surface Paradise. And my brother worked in a nightclub across the road. And I was working in a nightclub called Juliana's, just picking up glasses at about 17 years of age. And then um, I realized it wasn't for me. So I kind of parted ways of the hairdressing and moved over the road and started working at the Penthouse nightclub. And as a waiter there, that was fine. But they had a male review show, hmm. which ladies now there's not really that many men you know but they know of um, like Chippendales and that kind of thing so they asked me as a waiter to one night go out to the compare of the show and give him a drink with my tray but then the thing was I had to take my clothes off while you were walking with a tray <laughs> well I was very talented <laughs> but I got out there and here I am they've got all the velcro and that I've got a pair of pants that I had to go around my ankles and I'm just running around <laughs> doing it looks silly but I end up can, can we just stop for a second I just yeah. need to understand what called yeah. on because we are going to get into the fact that this almost became a it was a career why did they ask me of no no i'm curious 
why did you say yes? What was the... I'm more curious about that. Yeah. What, oh. what was the... What part of you thought, yeah, you know what? I'm comfortable with this. It'll be fun. I'm up for it. What, I wasn't comfortable. So, I had, so to speak. I had a few shots of drinks before I went out there. There we right? go. That gave me my brave, there. like, I'm going to do this. Okay. But why I did it, and now I look back in my life, I found it exciting. Yeah. And I, once I got on stage, I loved the attention. Yeah. And that's just me, you know. I'm like that even to this day. I love to talk. I love to get out. So anyway, I did that, but I end up in the show. Now that show, over the years, I did characters like I was Superman. I was on the main front page of the bulletin and all this kind of stuff. And then the show evolved to the point where we were this penthouse my review show. Can I just slow you down for a moment? I'm just trying to understand. Did you have a dance background? So, no. I actually could really move though. Was it more based on instinct? Yeah. yeah. None of us guys actually ever seen a male stripper before. Right. So we were just doing what the beauty of that is. And over the years, and this is where we'll go with this, even when we were a professional and I end up touring the world, yeah. right, which is where we'll go, um, we had never actually seen other Mara View because there was no internet. There was no nothing on television. Right. So you couldn't look up stuff. Yeah. There was no magic mic. There was the no culture. social media. We yeah. didn't have, all you had is Surface Paradise and who we were. And so the, us guys were just doing our thing. It evolved over years. Gotcha. So the guys kind of moved on and went off and then we kind of created. So we moved over to a Megadrome and they started up another show at the penthouse with a guy named Billy Cross, which yes. people know on the Gold Coast now, a guy named Mark Dim, Jamie Jury, who yeah. was only 18, 17. When he first started, he was kind of very young and what have you. Well, we should mention for our international listeners that Jamie Jury went on to become a, a national television icon for many years. Yeah. Was, was, uh, was a, He's a, like a designs... Landscaping in, and yeah, gardening. Yeah, international in yeah. Dubai, even in, over in England yeah, and everything. He did incredible. a complete reinvention of himself. Incredible. Which is a theme in your life too. So this review at the penthouse yep. starts to evolve. Yep. We were doing the show and what happened was we got a video and a poster from a show in America called Manpower. Now, Billy... Um, he's a very entrepreneurial kind of thing. So what he did was he basically registered the name here in Australia, took the show that we were doing and started getting bookings for us as Manpower Australia. That's how it was born. So still the penthouse Maraview, but Manpower. So we started touring, started building up a name, same guys, right? So there was me, Billy, a couple of different guys. And then we started getting gigs. We're doing New Zealand tours. Then we ended up like obviously going around Australia. We did a lot of Australia touring, a lot of driving. Then we went over to, uh, Billy went over to America and and then we got a gig just off, I remember arriving in Las Vegas and we're driving down the road. How old are you? Uh, I was about 22 years old. Okay, so this has been a bit of a whirlwind ride from Mm. 17, 18 to 22, Mm. this thing's taken off. Yeah. You've done the national tour, the state tours. Now you find yourself in the States and you're in the entertainment capital of the world. Yeah, so but t- we were on a little little club out off this main street. Ah. We weren't in Vegas. Yeah. And there's this huge poster. We're driving down with this big Chippendales poster of, you know, oh, they've got, nice. got Colin Cuff guys. Yeah. I'm like, wow, look at that, you know. Years later, we were on that poster. That's incredible. On that so, same billboard. Mm. So the building, the, eventually what happened with Manpower is that we grew in Manpower where... Um, like now, everyone knows about uh, Oprah, but they had the show like the Donahue. Donahue's show was the Phil Donahue. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but once Manpower did Donahue, and well, mm. in Australia, we'd done the Ray Martin show 
all every show that you can imagine on TV. We used to um, everywhere we went, they'd arrive at the airport and they'd be interviewing us. That kind of thing. It got really big, but I got to the point in Manpower where I felt like I was on stage and there was about a thousand women, and I just wanted to be at home. I just wanted to have my own base. And believe it or not, I did meet someone, and I moved, left the show, and I went to Sydney in 1992. So I'd done a calendar shoot. We did all that. And I went to Sydney, one of the other guys, Mark, had left the show and went to Sydney and I started a different direction there. Can I just, before we jump into that chapter, mm. was that, that must have been like a whirlwind yes. in your life. It was. And as you say, there's television, there's cameras, there's interviews, yep. there's calendars. Yeah. How was it that you didn't let that swallow you up? Did you were able to say, I'm going to pull the train up and I'm going to head back home. How were you able, do you think, to do that and not... not go down a whirlpool. <laughs> mm. To be honest, all the guys that joined Manpower after my, the original guys stepped into a show that was already set up. It's like walking into any show that's already big. It's great, you're in the buzz. Whereas we started with nothing, we moved up, and by the time we got there, we'd done so much traveling, we built it up. None of us had any ego. I'll tell you, if you had an ego in Manpower, you were brought down really quick. The beauty of Manpower was that when we performed, we would do perform for the ladies, we would sign the autographs, but we'd always come as a group and leave as a group, right? And there was a lot of professionalism and it was a, a show. We always looked at, you know, one guy would do certain kind of thing in a show and then until Billy was at the end and it was just a, it, and it worked. It was a, a chemistry, even when we went to America, we didn't even do tipping. The women like, you know, all the tipping, we didn't do that. So, and we had celebrities come to our, our shows. We had, um, um, what's the guy's name who sings that when I'm, um, uh, uh, sing it, you got to sing it. When my baby, when my baby. Peter Allen. Peter, yeah. People like Peter Allen come to our show. Um, we had celebrities come to our show. Real. Yeah. yeah, and photos with him. I've got things. Um, and the beauty of that is, is that when these people come, they'll come to see us. Yeah. It was cool, right? Yeah. But as I said, I felt like when I left Manpower, everything I did after that, and this is when I went to Sydney, I felt more. Uh, I felt that I've, I, it was Graham Drake doing what I'm doing now, not manpower. I was just on a ride. I'd get to the airport and they'd give me a ticket. Okay, we're going, here's your, here's your run of where we're going. I had no control over it. And manpower was just, I was just doing the show, just being me. But once I left manpower, I had to make my own money. I had to be who, and I felt more, I did more success, I feel, in the time I was away from manpower. And funny enough, we'll talk about this, but I came back to manpower years later in a different role. So already we're seeing a, this pattern that would follow you your whole working life yeah. where the kid that doesn't quite fit in is doing the hairdressing, knows that's not where he needs to be, is doing the job that he finds and he's collecting glasses, sees an opportunity, goes on this incredible ride. I found is, a niche. I yes. found something I loved. But then you're, you're able to come back home and you start to reinvent again. There's this, already this little pattern of reinvention and not being afraid to reinvent yourself. Can I say one thing? You asked me, could I dance? I couldn't dance, but I did. There was one gentleman, John Ritchie, who had joined our show years later, and he asked me to audition for the ADA dance course in Brisbane, which is a classical ballet tap music drama. Hmm. They had to lift my leg, look at my cut. And I went, I used to travel to Brisbane every day. It's like going to school. It's like going to, you know, like, um, <clears throat> where you go and you, you have to do your classical it's ballet. regimented. Yeah. yeah, like Fame. You know the movie Fame yeah. where they're in there? Yeah, if you don't get there on time, the teacher would kick you out of the class. The teacher would come and, you know, hit you with a stick on the floor. You know, it was really regiment. Hmm. We used to, it was like 
uh, commando training. We had to run up hills with an iron bar with a girl hanging on the middle uh, and hold them up because we had to do adagio, which was lifting mm. the girls. We used to get medicine balls thrown at us as we're going because you've got to get used to a weight coming towards you. It's full on. Were you ever self-conscious of the fact that I imagine you would have In been tights. surrounded by dead <laughs> I was. Uh, the ones that like, we're both wearing now. But when you get into a, a space like that, you're going to be around people that have probably followed the dream of ballet their entire lives. Yes. And then you walk into that pack. Yeah. And how do you overcome imposter syndrome or any kind No, of... there's no imposter syndrome. There's only three of us in the class as in oh, male gotcha. and 26 girls. So three males, 26 girls. Right. One of the guys that was in it was a uh, diver. He was doing ballet to get his stance that he was yeah. actually a professional diver like here i am older actually i was older in my age because a lot of the girls in the class were smaller and younger um whereas i was older and in fact we used to do adagio with the second year girls because there wasn't enough guys and being a guy who had trained in weights and things like that i actually was strong mm. so i was able to lift a lot of the girls that couldn't be lifted and what was like the that. what was the motivation for taking this on where was that going to take you well i just I just wanted to be a better dancer, performer. Right. So what it did was, even when I left the doing the, the dancing as that, later on in life, it actually, and even in manpower, when I would do my choreography, even when I did my solo, I was able to do things, the grungettes and things that looked good on stage. I was able to perform. I, I did some acrobatics and things like that. I used to do these... I could stand you know, jump and land on my hands and hold myself above a lady and then rise myself really low and just do stuff that was spec looked good. Yeah. And it that gave me a foundation, especially when I left Manpower and went to Sydney, is that I was doing classes in the Sydney Dance Company. I ended up performing with Elton John. I got to perform um they were they needed uh some dancers for uh while he was doing a concert at the back and they did a like a before the show started he wanted some dancers and guys out the back look good but because of the guys that i was with yeah. had bodies but yeah. so i got to meet elton john and we'll see him every night while i was in concert um i got chosen to dance at a private thing for madonna and her brother in a private party crazy and, times yeah so i got when i was in sydney and i then so here i am dancing when i left manpower dancing in sydney but also doing and we'll go there but i went into security work to supplement my income when right. I went there too. Right. Like I was in uh, the Cross and Oxford Street area, so I was working Sydney, in clubs yeah. and yeah, in the in the that scene of the yeah. gay scene and that type of thing. Crime and, scene as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, kind of yeah, yeah. We got I got threatened by being shot to be shot by people and and I had to defend myself and things like that. So I had to learn really quick. It, it's you're in Sydney. You, mm. You're doing all this. What was yeah. the what Crazy, was the isn't it? what was the game plan? No, I just arrived there and right. my main thing was I could strip, I could dance. Right. So I wanted to, so actually when in the first few weeks I got there, this is where I, I went for a meeting with uh, a acting uh, management company, Daniel Lucas, and I walked into mm. Daniel's office. So, and again, I'm sure we've talked about this in the past, Daniel ended up being my agent in Sydney years and years later mm. as as fate would have it mm. and uh so it is really we live on an island so it is a small town yeah but yeah lovely guy so yeah. please keep going so i walked in with daniel into daniel with my brother and he's got the like um he's got the you know the card the comp cards and all that kind of photos i've set a manpower calendar <laughs> but he took me <clears throat> on and initially i got a few commercials and i did this but i wasn't getting much at all and then i kind of uh, Daniel Con was starting to send me to commercial. I said to him, just send me the stuff you really think that I can do. 
And I went to a casting one day, and this was a turning point in my kind of, when I call acting or mm. thing, is um, I met a Japanese gentleman, at, and he noticed when I come in, and I noticed he was he doing a lot of work and getting work, and he said, he said, can I tell you something? He said, well, what's that? And he said, I noticed when you came into the casting, you were fl- flustered, and you were just been trying to get a park, and you were reading what you needed to do. He said, you need to just center yourself. You need to just... Um, just come down to like a neutral, no emotion of frustrating, angry, angry or sad or whatever. Just be neutral. So when you walk into the casting director, mm-hmm. he wants you to be angry or sad. Yeah. You're coming from a level plane. Great advice. But it's something you have to work at. Yes. And that time he spoke to me, I really listened to him. Yeah. And it changed. I was doing like commercial after commercial mm. and beer commercials. And, um, you were uh, a Viking. For a Volvo commercial, <laughs> then I did uh, a mini series. Um, I did uh, uh, one of the big things, which is iro- ironic, is that I did a polar bear commercial where I was in a polar bear outfit. John Cox, who did Babe, he did this before, didn't he? An Oscar winner, yeah. and it is a Bundy bear ad, and yeah. I was one of the polar bears. And for those that are international, once again, that's for Bundaberg Rum, which we'll call yeah, Bundy's here yeah. in Australia. Yeah. That was an iconic television campaign yep the director and, came from the united states over and i correct me if i'm wrong it was set in a like a an outback bar yes and like, there's next to a nightclub kind of thing yeah gotcha and there's a you know you're, you're typically australian crowd in the bar and then there's the polar bears having drinks because the polar bear was the icon for the bundaberg yeah, they had these bar. old guys in an old pub yeah Gee, those bears know how to party and we were next door in the other pub and partying and playing the saxophone and what have you. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Because it's in, it's interesting. This is pre-CGI. Yes. You are literally in a suit sharing space inside without kind of animatronic technology, weren't you? Yeah, two of them had they had remote controls to move their mouth, their eyes, all that kind of thing. Yeah. What was the heat like? Like what, once you're in there, because you're in a full like Lycra suit, but then you're completely covered. So we were only allowed to be in there for like 10, 15 minutes. Then they'd pull the heads off and get blowers down into the outfit and one time i could hear the young girl going um they kept the director kept pushing it past of course a few more minutes few yeah. more minutes and then one of the girls yelled out something wrong with my bear and next minute the bear just and collapsed and wow collapsed. so it took three days to do this filming so we're a three-day commercial so then i and you know what crazy thing is i did that then i auditioned for a wagner opera i've never been to the opera house and i got into a wagner opera in what capacity? As a, uh, in the actual Wagner, I'm not a singer, but they have like yeah. soldiers and they do fight scenes. Yes. And I got cast in the Wagner Opera. I've never been in the Opera House and I was on the main stage of the Opera House. We had a big warehouse where they had all the sets That's and that insane. was moved. Yes. So here I am in the green room of the Opera House doing a Wagner Opera for a few weeks. Like I went for a couple of weeks That's or whatever insane. it was. insane. Yep. And then I got cast in the, the movie The Sum of Us with Jack Thompson and Russell Crowe. Yes. So I went for a part. Um, so I ended up, if you Google me, it's the leather man for some of us. So I ended up this, we were in a gay club. Yeah. I'm at the bar and there's me, the other guy and Jack Thompson at the bar. And Russell at the bar? So no, Russell no. wasn't in that scene. He right. was over there. And I always thought to myself, oh, he's a bit, now looking back, he didn't talk to anyone or anything like that, but he would have been in his mind. He's, of, in, he's in the skin Yeah, he was of just character. watching it. Exactly. Yeah. So, but Jack Thompson, oh my God, he's iconic. For me, I grew up seeing him years ago when he was, I think he was a, pen, a playboy 
or I think it was Cleo magazine. He was the first male centerfold. Yeah, and he was with two ladies in in a, in a relationship. All oh, that was, he was yes, quite... he was living a very um, uh, bohemian kind of lifestyle. Yes, yeah. yeah. So here I am sitting in front of Jack Thompson, which is iconic. Crazy. And yeah, and everyone in the bar, you know, when the, you got the beers and they have to swill them up to look them. He he was getting his topped up, and so mm. he said, "Make sure theirs are topped up." So when I first started talking, or actually when I was doing the scene, he said to me, "I'm going to give you a tip." I said, oh, great, Jack Thompson's giving me a tip. He said, when you speak, don't move your hands around too much because when they edit it, it oh, makes yeah. it difficult for editing and, and whatever. And I went, oh, okay, oh, thank you for that. Yeah. That's good. So the day went on and then later on, we've had a few uh, beers and I started getting a bit tipsy. He was getting really tipsy. Yeah. So he started doing thing, talking, but he started moving his hands around and I said, oh, hey, Jack, I thought you said don't move your hands around. He said, don't listen to me. He said, that's their job to edit it. Don't worry. <laughs> and I just thought it was so funny that he tells me this and then he's like, whatever. It was beautiful. Yeah. And that was cool. Yeah. So this is when I was in doing all the acting and all that. And I was thinking, oh, what am I going to do now? Type thing. And so Billy Cross came to Sydney and spoke to Mark and was putting a second show together. Right. So this is when Manpower's in Vegas. I'd left the show. It's around about 95. So I've been in Sydney for about three or four years. And they wanted me to come back in the show, but as the MC of the show. This is feeling like Al Pacino in The Godfather 3 when he's, mm. he does a speech about every time I think I'm out, they call me back yeah. in. It was weird yeah. because here I am, but I wanted to get out of Sydney. Right. So this and came along at the perfect time. Well, it's perfect timing. And well, it, for me, Daniel Lucas said, don't go. He said, actually, you're starting to get a name here. Right. We've got a, a movie coming up. Um, uh, which is a, the second of um, a movie coming up. We wanted you to do a role, uh, The Matrix 2. Yeah, and there was a scene in that he wanted me to go and cast for. And I said, well, I want to just get out. So he was saying, look, they're getting to know you. You mm. know, these things are coming up. But I made the decision to leave Sydney mm. and uh, do the show and MC the show. So I was not a dancer. I was. I did a performance at the end of the show. Mm. But it was a new thing. I actually was the MC of Manpower. Now... Did this again take you around the world? Yep. The first trip we went to Guam. We went to places that Amer uh, the manpower had not been. Yeah. So we went to Guam. We went to Japan for three months. We went to England. We did the first tour of England, all through England. We arrived there. We were in a, their Today Show kind of thing or morning show with the Thames behind us getting, doing a routine. You know what I mean? That was cool. We got picked up in a bus and we were treated like celebrities. And What was it, was it like cool. being up front and on a microphone? Because that's a whole other skill set. Mm. Yeah, I took it on. Actually, I was... I, I, I had another MC of Manpower, which I just had to perfect his lines because he was very, very good. And I, a guy named James and he was in Vegas and he was fantastic. And so all I do was like, look at how he presented and how he um, spoke. And I actually was able to duplicate in a way his energy on stage. Mm. And the show had just had to be, it was just a duplicate of the show in Vegas. Right. So we had two shows doing exactly the same with different guys in their role. How long were you doing this chapter? Because mm. when we met, and I guess, you know, full disclosure. In 1997. Right. When we met, I was head of announcing at SeaWorld and we were hiring show announcers. Mm. So how long had you been doing prior uh, the, this part of the manpower story? About two years. Okay. Two, two, yeah, about two years. Why did, you, why did you decide it was time to move out of it again? I met someone. There's a pattern here. Yes. <laughs> I know. I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> I met someone, so I decided I wanted to leave the show right. in 1997. 
So, and I'm from the Gold Coast, which this is where it brought me back to the Gold Coast. Because right. if I had stayed in Sydney, I probably would have gone a different direction. Yeah. So I met someone, <coughs> left the show, and I thought, well, what am I going to do while I'm here? So I went for an audition at um, SeaWorld as a show announcer, and that's when I met you. The, the idea of going to SeaWorld, what, what, again, this is, uh, I'm curious because you've mm. had all these opportunities and you've not been afraid to jump. What made you look at SeaWorld and think, well, I could do that? Mm. And did you have any doubt? Because it doesn't seem like you've second-guessed yourself along the way or had a lot of self-doubt. Mm. Were you aware no, that you didn't have a lot of self-doubt? No, not really. I just no. went with the flow. And then when you saw the SeaWorld opportunity, were you straight away thinking, yeah, I, I could do that? Yeah, because yeah. I'd emceed with Manpower. I thought, well, okay, I can be a show an announcer at SeaWorld. I didn't think, um, you know, because there's so many, like there's Movie World even, you could have gone mm. and think, oh, well, I want to be an actor at Movie World or do, do roles. Or on the Gold Coast, I just saw... An ad, I think it was. I'm not sure what how I knew. Back in the day, it would have been a newspaper ad. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's 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 true. Old school. That's and that's exactly true because that's yeah. how I um uh I came back to SeaWorld later on, and that was through an ad on yeah. So I saw an ad. I came along, and I remember that time because I had to MC. Oh, you gave me all these things, and I started saying the ladies in the back of the room or something. That's I, right. I said something like that, and it's like I'd forgotten that. I think it was. I think we were doing like a ski show introduction. Yeah. Let's improvise a ski show introduction. And now that you say that, I re I remember that. That's 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 hilarious. That's funny. What stood out for us, and us being myself, and I think Andrew Hamilton might have been my two IC at the time, mm. was when we all sat and talked about who we wanted, we were all agreeing that we liked your energy and your, your spirit and that you were good on mic, but you also had a great spirit. And we thought, oh, he's going to have a great uh, chemistry with us. Uh, before anything else, he'll have a good heart. Mm. And I think that's one of the elements that's probably carried you through your theme park life too, because you've evolved so much and moved into so many different areas of the theme park experience. Let's just stay in that announcing space for a little while. How did you find that experience of SeaWorld on mic, marine mammal shows, water ski shows? What was that experience like? I felt like I fitted in well, but I was learning a skill. Because up until then, doing manpower, you're doing the same show every night. And I did perfect that. But when I walked into that role, I realized I was in a different area. And as I first started doing the shows, where you think you're doing well, and that's the beauty of the announcing team and people like Andrew, yourself, is that you molded us, you, you would critique us, you would give us a positive feedback, and it made me a better announcer. Walk, walking on stage with animals next to you, with a 300 kilogram sea lion and a, and a trainer, because that's the beauty of where I was doing the shows, um, and getting to know the trainers, and it's exciting. Anyone being to SeaWorld, it's exciting to go to SeaWorld, but to walk on stage with a, an animal, being on stage, and there's dolphins and trainers. It's very different in those days. It was, um, I remember Guy, one of the trainers, Guy Bedford, they were doing a show. Now, nowadays, the shows are different um, where they have blocks of dialogue. I remember walking on stage at Dolphin Cove as the dolphin trainers were walking off, and as he walked past me, he goes, earn your money, right? And that's the way we were. We had to fill. So I walked on stage and I, was, I didn't know when they were coming back. No. I had to talk for about three to four minutes as if this was part of the show, not sorry guys and this. The people didn't even know. Yeah. And that made me a better announcer. It made me a better performer because I just had to flow. Same with animals. They don't usually um, do the role. They don't know this is scripted. 
So you had to fill the, the ski show. If you had a fall or what have you, you had to fill. Now, sometimes you had to turn to it and not ignore it, acknowledge what happened, but, and that made me a better announcer. I'm so glad you said that. That was the one thing that evolved my abilities to was the fact that you couldn't count on anything going to plan. And then you had to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. And then embrace that, it, in fact. Yes. Sometimes we'd say, bring it on. I was talking to someone yesterday about a possible thing that might be an opportunity for this person going forward. And they were kind of thinking, would I or won't I? And I'm not quite sure if it's in me. And then I'd said to this person, just remember there's no growth in comfort. If you stay inside the comfort zone, you don't grow. You, my, o- you only grow outside the comfort zone. And my father left me with something. He yeah. said, smooth seas don't make good sailors. Perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. So that was sharpening all those skills in you. You mm. obviously somewhere along the line fell in love mm. because it really is a bit like a, it's a romance, this, your love for, for these animals. Not just that, though. The family of SeaWorld. Yeah. You spend more time with those animals and those people than you do your own family. Let's talk about that, because I don't think a lot of people appreciate how unique a workspace that is and was, where you know people will throw that word around loosely. Oh, it was like family, but you seem to really mean it. What, what makes you say that? It, because it's the truth. Because even now, as a person who I am, and people at SeaWorld don't know my background, but I watch that family, still that spirit, still at SeaWorld now. That's what gets us through things every day. And, and more so in those days too, I think, because we had divisions. We had like the Marine Science Division, we, or Animal Division, we had the Announcer Division. But we had our own little clicky group. And we interacted, not really a lot with other groups thing, but when we did get together, when we had our social events, it was awesome. We all got on. We all had a same passion. And to this day, and you know this, there are people that we've worked with many, many years ago. We could see them today and there's that bond still. Oh, 100%. Mm. When, did the, when did you start to become aware of the love of the animals and the fascination with the, the training aspect and mm. the relationship building that has to happen with animals? Because mm. you went on to have a life with a multitude of different kinds of species yeah where did that love affair start for you i stepped away from SeaWorld at one stage i as you know i'd left and the partner i had was in in uh, believe it or not working their family owned uh nursing homes so i left that to work in a nursing home and i was working in the nursing home and uh i my kids when they were born um, I would become a Mr. Mum. So I was left work and I was actually at home with the right, kids doing that. Right. And I saw an ad in the paper, we were talking about before, of a marine mammal trainer at SeaWorld. There was a job as an animal trainer at SeaWorld. And I thought, I can do that. And I thought, well, I don't have any experience or anything like that. But I thought, I've seen these guys do it. You know, what people do, oh, I could be an animal trainer. And that was a bit maybe cocky of my my who I was at the time, but not cocky, but I thought, no, I can do that. I've been on stage and... I went and I sent my uh, application in and what happened was the usually they do uh, interviews of a lot of people and then it gets nutted down to a small amount of people and the person Chuck Gard and Amory O'Neill who's at SeaWorld even to this day has left and come back they called me and asked me to come in for an interview or a chat now they hadn't interviewed anyone else they were going away on holidays or something and when they came back they were going to interview the who were the last few and uh, we went in, and one of the things Chuck Gard says, 
he was a Canadian, I won't even try to do his accent, but he said, um, what do you, why do you think you'd be a good animal trainer? I said, well, Chuck, when I was working here as an announcer, you had a lot of trainers that could train animals, but were more introverts and not didn't know how to perform on stage. And we used to teach them how to be better presenters, because that's where the show was going, as a presenter, not just a trainer, yeah. on microphone. I said, you have the ability to make me a great trainer but I have already that ability to perform. I said, isn't that a happy marriage? And he looked at me and he went, yeah, good answer like that. So we had a little bit of a chat and we're talking. Yeah. I got home, 30 minutes later, I got a phone call. And Chuck's on the phone. And he says, hey, Graham, it's Chuck. I said, hi, Chuck, how are you? And I, He's a good. He goes, um, yeah, uh, you got the job. He goes, uh, you're a marine mammal trainer. I said, what? Really? And I went to talk and he goes, yeah, I've got to go. I'm busy. Uh, I'll see you Monday. Start Monday. And he hung up on me. Yeah. And I just went, what just happened? Yeah. So I started at SeaWorld and just walked in. Luckily, like the people who are animal trainers now who studied and do like, yeah. I did my training at SeaWorld. Yeah. I studied at SeaWorld. I did my animal captive management through SeaWorld. Right. And I evolved. And the people that are, I trained with, Donna um, Ashburn, who was Donna Keenan at the time, was a trainer, but she's still there now. And yeah. she was there when I started at eighteen, nineteen. Yes, yeah, she's an amazing trainer. She really is. And those yeah. people that um, Robert Lamman, who's now in in guest services, and yes. this is the people that evolved. He was one of the trainers. There was so many people there, the older trainers, but there's so much knowledge, and mm. I learned so much. Mm. And I always believe, and this is nothing or dolphins or seals, or whatever. The seal department and the seal training that I got was an amazing foundation of learning. And that's where I was fortunate because that training that I got and that uh, announcing that I had mm. helped me when I actually went for a job at Dreamworld as a tiger hand. Yeah, before we get to that. Yeah, yeah, I know, crazy, right? <laughs> I just want to slow down a little yeah. bit. So again, there's this wonderful pattern in your life of being unafraid to reinvent and, and rebirth yourself and step up to the plate. Yep. and see where it lands. And it's that fortune favours the brave, right? Yes. When you start with the, the journey with working with marine mammals, what, when people say you, you develop a relationship with those animals, mm. what, what does that really mean and how would you describe it? Because I think for people on the outside looking in, it might be hard for them to conceive that there's a relationship there that's mutual, where an animal will form a bond with a particular trainer and then that the same way the other way. And can you describe any kind of relationship you might have with an animal where you just felt there's a real bond here, real love? Yeah, I think it's a mutual respect between the animal. Remembering they are still a wild animal. Yeah. Never thinking that this animal's, you know, um, like, like a domestic animal or yes. anything. Knowing their power, what they can do. Yes. And I have seen some pretty full on things happen over the years. That's respect. Though, isn't it? Respect for Absolutely. the animal. Never get complacent. No. But we, we humans do get complacent and yes. things can happen. And yes. that's where it makes you, remind you of making sure that you, there's a mutual respect. Some animals are different. Some animals are, uh, are every animal's a different mindset. Mm. And, and people look at dolphins as well. They're all amazing, beautiful, but each animal, each dolphin has a different personality. Some can be a bit more aggressive than others, mm. more docile, more friendly. Yes. Same as seals. Certain species of seal, the Australian sea lion is one of my favourite, the neos. Why? Because they're just in, 
I'm not saying they're more intelligent, but they're more inquisitive. They're, they're curious. Absolutely. And yeah. they're very, very smart. You'll get like uh, California sea lions, you know, it's like, well, yeah, what are you going to do for me? You know, and you got some fish and let's go. And they're really full on. Yeah. You got the first seals like, yeah, whatever. What am I doing? And they're kind of, you know what I mean? Like they're a different kind. Of, sure. And then you get the neos and you know, they're watching you. They're smart. And they'll, you'll train them a behavior. But even while they're doing that behavior, and that's why we have to work the animal all the time and make sure they stay online because they'll always look at an easier way out. Well, if, if I, and that's why as a trainer, you have to watch because if you let them get away with something, they will shorten that little distance they're doing. They'll, sh they'll do a little smaller jump. Yeah. They'll tra they'll change something. Yeah. They'll go, well, if I have to put in the bin, why do I need to put in the bin? I'll just bring it straight back. You know what I mean? They're thinking all yeah. the time. And that's the stimulating thing about Australian sea lion. They're very, even when we put them out on what we call R&R, &R, yeah we have to really be mindful of what's out there because they get up to mischief. Yeah. They'll get into things that other seals won't. I love that yeah, about them. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Where, what, what pulls you out of that world from the, the, the marine mammal mm. sector into big cats? Mm. What, what's the attraction there? Well, through the industry, you do have connections with other trainers and different... And I had a friend of mine that worked at Tiger Island and he mentioned they were looking for another keeper. And... But that part there they were going into a different where they used to do more of like talking about the animals but they were going into more of a like a show they wanted to do something with the animals on the island and we're talking about tiger island at dream world that's correct yeah. so it was good for me in a way because that's where they transitioned so i auditioned for that now this was a different story it wasn't walking in and having a one interview i had three interviews i had to do the mm. speech there was a lot of physical stuff you had to run you had to do all this stuff it was a lot different because you're dealing with Two hundred and fifty kilogram tigers, but if you trained animals like them, like I could be a seal trainer and walk in and know how to do. If I know the cues, I could work them. But if you've worked tigers for say thirty years, you walk on that island, they'd kill you. So, I it took me a year and a half before I could even walk on the island really? with the two keepers by my side wow. for the first connection of a tiger. Right. So in the early stage, I'm just talking to the people on our tiger walks. They used to do the photos and I'd be up the back trying to get the tiger's attention. But the problem is you don't want the tiger to have attention on me, but that's what they used me to do, you know, making a noise with a bit of a box just so the tiger's looking. So the day I walked on the island with the two keepers by my side, they let the tiger walk up to me. Tony, so, and I don't mean to stop your flow. What's, what, what kind of tiger are we talking? Bengal tiger. The Bengal tiger, tiger. okay. Yeah. Can you, and, and the average weight you, just, you were saying? Over 200 kilos. And this is a fully mature male Correct. walking yes. towards you? Yes. Okay. So as you walk through these big gates, it's Tiger Island, the tigers, if they're sleeping on the island and they know you, they'll just look up and then they'll go back to sleep. Hmm. But as soon as I walked on the island, as a person who they've seen, because when I first started cleaning all the dens and all the cages and that, they used to watch me and everything and so the beauty of cleaning near them and walking past them all the time is they got to see me and hear my voice and get to know me but they had no physical contact with me other than when we used to do the tiger walks and I'd be behind the tiger with the guests so they'd hear me but the other keepers were the ones at the head of the tiger I imagine they get your scent too and understand are they mm. are, are they, are they, they just, that way inclined as well or? yeah I think it's everything sure. every sense they are just watching your movement. Hence the reason why when we do photos, and like, like you could do adults, but you could never do children. Children move yeah, too quickly. Yeah. So that, you know, if we were doing a talk to new staff, we would walk out into the park with a tiger and new staff, that would be part of their orientation. Yes. And they'd say, if you see us walking through the park, don't hide behind a tree. Don't hide. We may not be able to see you, but the tiger will. That'll get his interest. 
So getting to know a different mindset. Hmm. And I've come from SeaWorld. The first day I got there, this is crazy. I'm feeding the animals fish. They didn't ask if I was a vegetarian or a vegan or anything, but which I wasn't. But the first day I got there, they'd had a delivery of all these carcasses of deer. And here I am, they said, okay, they're frozen. We're gonna need to get a hacksaw and cut up these deer. Wow. So here I am cutting up deer. I'm thinking, I didn't even think I'd have, to, I didn't even conceive yeah, I'd do that. And they uh, said, I'm with Mohan, the white tiger. You've got to take the fur off because he doesn't like the fur on it. I'm like, what? He doesn't like the fur on it? Because I'm like, well, don't take the fur off and he'll eat it eventually. Oh, no, no. We'll and did, did, I don't know if I stopped you. <laughs> Were you telling the story there of, the, was it your first meeting where they were walking this tiger towards you? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So I've, I divert. I no, talk no. a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. So I walked on the island. <clears throat> he started walking up and he come up to my knee and he sniffed my knee. And then, and then they just pushed his head away. That's right. enough. That was all it was. Right. was. And over time, I used to keep walking on the island, but then they start disting themselves where they'll walk ahead and I'll, or I'll walk ahead. And then there was a day where they said, right, Graham, you're coming on the island. I had to radio. And they would, they said, oh, and they were like three or 400 meters away under a tree. So I had to walk on the island and start walking towards them. Now that situation is they're ready because if I walk on the island and a cat starts heading towards me, they would start moving towards me as well. They wouldn't run at you as such, but the tiger would start moving. And that did happen, and they come and they say, steer them away. So over time, I started walking on the island, they got used to me. The thing is though, then you've got to get to a situation where the only reason we're on the island is a lot of times to stop them hurting each other. Yeah. So then we have to get, if two tigers get into a fight, we had to break them up. How's that even, well, maybe I don't ask you how that's well, even possible. Well, but, then there's fur going and, and there's two tigers going at each other. Was it a regular to, occurrence? No, because no. we would try and, it's better to prevent than, but there was a time when my boss, Pat, there was a time where there was a cat in the water and if another, when they get in the water, they get pumped and another tiger was heading to the water. I said, hmm. okay, you need to get in between them and stop them, like stand in between them. So here I'm standing and there, one's growling and another one's growling. I've got two Bengal tigers. And they do, they, they respect it. And you're, you're in between them? Yeah. So how on earth do you... Well, I wouldn't physically be able to stop them, but it's that respect that they grow to know. Um, and there have been, I believe, from what I understand, some keepers that they've had that never got to stay in Tiger Island because the tigers just didn't like them or didn't, there was a bad relationship with them. Mm. And tigers uh, have to, they're a solitary animal. so. Th as I said, you could have a lion island where the lions are on the <coughs> island, they could like and be together. Yeah. So the only reason we're on the island is really to make sure that they're okay with each other. And we would take them off the island and walk them to their pen, undo the leash or the mm. chain, and they would just walk casually into there and we close the pen. Now, I remember the once where they do this thing called um, spray marking, where they lift the tail and spray. It's like a mixture of like a urine and, and their spray. They spray yeah, everywhere. Yeah. And I remember, <laughs> Being a new keeper, I undid it, opened the cage, and as I'm locking the gate, I turned to the other keeper, and the cat just walked in, lifted his tail, and sprayed me right in the face. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but that day, all the cats wanted to spray me because I've got this spray all yeah. over me, you know? So, but that was, you know, and I had my mouth open. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but it was, that was, a, and all these little things that happen as you do as a keeper yeah. or as a trainer of seals or dolphins, or um, as a, now I'm a polar bear keeper as well, yeah. which is when I came back to, well, I did all this with the animals and that type of thing. And I left uh, Dreamworld and came to Movie World as yes. a show and ed coordinator. Yes. And then I left <clears throat> that role and went, left the industry actually for a while. Can we, and before we jump ahead too quick, when you were describing so well the, the experience of being in and around the tigers, tigers and being in the water between the two, etc. Mm. As the more you do this, do you find other parts of your senses come alive or 
become enhanced? You, well, you not so do much you, enhanced, but you have to be on the ball. Do you intuit? Like, do you develop this almost like a sixth sense? Absolutely. And yeah. this takes time. Yeah. Not sixth sense, but you, you, it become, that's how you become a good animal trainer because yeah. you're not only being on the island with them, but you also were asking them to do certain things and behaviours. There was a time where I actually did a situation where I had to throw the chicken up in the end, and the tiger would leap and grab it. And I remember when I used to train animals and that, so what we call a reinforcement, when do we reinforce? So when the animal had already got the chicken, I thought, well, no, I'll run across the island to the, it's right near the end of the we show. We should say that chicken's obviously dead when it's thrown in yeah, the Yeah, just air. a piece of chicken. It's a piece of we chicken. We used to have meat <laughs> in our pouch. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. Sorry, not it a just, live chicken. Just fly. <laughs> <laughs> Feathers were going everywhere. <laughs> no, it wasn't a good look. So... And this is, I'll tell two experiences. Please, yeah. As I ran, now I'm Sultan, he's the biggest tiger we had, 250 kilo, magnificent animal. So I'm running with my hand on the pouch over to the edge of the moat, near the, what they have a was like moat. As I'm running, he's looking at me, he's running beside me. So I brought my hand around to say, hey, I've got no meat in my hand, but I brought it around too close and he's come around and bit me right through the hand. Wow. Right, now he let go straight away, he knew, and the guys, said and I went oh like that and I put my hand in my pouch because I didn't know I knew he'd bit me but I didn't know what and this is the end of the show so I'm waving goodbye to the people with a smile yeah. on my face with the cat next to me yeah feeding him and the guys you have bit and I said yep and I was waving so I've taken the old cat so I've got to come off the island put my tiger away and then look at my hand and my hands blown up wow. right yeah and and I, and in other times I've been tagged where the animal will hit you and like force of a tiger hitting you can break, can break your arm. Is that right? And I've been hooked and tagged on the arm, right? So I've had injuries. The one that I do remember more, but I wasn't injured, was I was emceeing the show. Now you talk about as an MC, you know, the show must you know, try to, you know, as we MC, oh, everything's okay. The two tigers were leaping off the log and the guys, so everyone's focusing on that. And I had Kato, this other tiger, in the water, in the fountain over the back, like a waterfall, but in a pool. And I kind of had to keep my eye on him. It was my job to keep an eye on him. Because when you're looking at them, they won't come at you. But if they're opportunistic hunters, so if you've got your back to them, hmm. right, I'm going to get them. I've had times where I've keeper said, hey, Graham, and I looked around, and the tiger's just about to come, and I've looked at him, and he, went, and he just goes back to sleep. So hmm. I'm seeing the show. I'm saying to the audience, on the count of three, I want you to yell, jump, and we'll just have a practice. And that's when we go one, two, three, and jump, and the cats come through. So, ready, folks. Now, the tiger Kato were behind me. Folks, we had the video camera. Now, they must have seen him and focused, and they got it on the other cats, but then they've come back on him, and they've focused right on him, and you can see him just looking at me. Now, he started running across the island. No one yelled out to me. No one called out, but they had it on full video, and he leapt and hit me from behind. It was like hitting a buyer. He was about 160, 170 kilos at the time. So imagine getting full hit in the back. Luckily, I wasn't on the edge of the island. I hit the dirt, spun myself around, and had a tiger on top of me. And I went, and he's just standing on top of me. And I went, hello, Kato. I'm still on mic. And he wow. just stood there. in the. You can see in the video. And then he just slowly just walked off like, I gotcha. Wow. I felt his teeth hit me in the back of the head, Wow. which was pretty full on. Can I just ask you, what in that moment and oh. those other moments that you've talked about, Yes. what... What is it that has the animal decide to restrain itself? Like, what, what is it that where the animal says, that's enough? Why is it they're not crossing that threshold? They, and that, it, it, they definitely could. 
that relationship what, 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 we have. That's what it is, right? Because when they're young, mm. what we do is what we call take a hit. When they're young cubs mm. and they're, when we say a cub, they're 100 mm. kilos, we'll take a hit where an animal will run at you and you'll let them hit you and knock you to the ground. And that's playful to them, but it's full on. He's still in a more of a cub mentality. So he hit me. He wasn't trying to kill me, but he just, he got me, right? And I spun around. Now, his, and I know in the scenarios that have happened in different parts of the world where if you allow him his instinct to come in and don't, mm. if I'd laid there and put, he possibly could take me around the neck because sure. that's how they kill. They'll, with their carnassials, they'll sever your vertebrae. Sure. So I had to spin around. That's what I did. Look at him. him like this and say, hey, and he's looking at me and he's like. Incredible. So he's just basically got off me and walked off. In the video, you can see it. And so they for him, the, that was enough. I've, yep. I've pinged you. Yep. You know, I'm winded. Yeah. You know that I can do this. Yeah. Now I can walk away. That's Kato's nut. That was his. He he was full on. He there's some situations. He liked him. to let you know. I think all tigers did, but yeah. him more so. Yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. And you, like any animal, you can't let them um, practice that behaviour. Yeah. So we had to be on. So I let him do that, but. Uh, because we've had times where they've been raining and you've got your trench coat. Because this is the thing is when you wear different clothes. Yes. And who can, is that person? Yeah. Or enhance their, oh, what's yeah. that, something new. So yeah, you'd be sliding across on your belly in the mud with a tiger pushing you along. Yeah. yeah. How, how is it that you managed, did you ever have fear? And, and if you did, how did you mm. manage fear? Because I imagine you don't want to show them fear. To be honest, yeah. I, I was never scared. Yeah. I, I, it does freak you out a bit once you've been bitten or you've been hit like that because then you because you can get it again complacency oh yeah this is cool i can handle this stuff. but they they bring you back to reality very yeah. quick when a cat gets really in your face yeah or hits you like that in their power you come back to reality and you got to remember that and that's yeah. what kept us alive and the people i work with the truck keepers there Pat, who is from America, and that he's got some amazing experience, and the relationship he had with Mohan, the white tiger at the time, none of us could do what he could do with him because of that relationship. But Can we talk about that? I think just just very quickly. Mm. Again, I think that relationship piece is something people don't fully understand or appreciate, mm. and you know it better than I do. I remember for years when I was at SeaWorld, there'd be a, an animal rescue. I remember little beluga being rescued, and mm. trainers are doing twenty-four hour watches. Things that people don't really hear or know about, you know, and it's a bit more out there now in recent years. Mm. But you would see these relationships form with animals, like rescue animals, for example. And I'd see trainers almost in tears over certain situations because they feel so much love. Or if we lose them, if you All lose that... an animal through, you know, the, the natural process of That's right. living and dying. That's right. And you see that there are real relationships there. Did you? When you were at Dreamworld, for example, did you have that same sense of relationship? It's almost like a, a love? Yeah, of course. Shared love between that, an animal and, and yourself? Yes. But it takes time, like when you mm. meet a human. When you yes. meet a, a person, that initial attraction, a tiger's amazing. So that time and the years that we were with the tigers, and we had two mountain lions as well, which mm. was very cool. And that was a different relationship we had because a different type of animal. But... Um, Definitely. You, and when I decided to leave Tiger Island, it was a big decision for me. And you could just stay with them and that would be, a, I kind of, it's funny with my career, I kind of, I love doing what I do, but I always got this thing of, oh, I want to get another challenge. I want to, mm. not that I didn't like what I did, I just mm. wanted to do something that sometimes you chase, not so much a challenge, I actually thought when I left, oh, I need to get into a bigger role and make more money and mm. do a thing. And, but it wasn't, when I did that, I realized that wasn't me. 
I realized I need to come back and be who I wanted and do what I love to do, not chase the money, but chase what I love to do. Your joy. Yeah, that's what I did. Did you ever have mentorship as a young man? Was it, you know, you mentioned your dad had that terrible accident which took mm. him out of action for a long time. And was there, any, was there anyone on your journey that was in your ear as a guiding compass or was it just you on instinct? No, I had no one. Right. Even to this day, I don't have a mentor I sort of talk to. I've always, I've, out of five kids, I've never, even my brothers, they went off and did their own thing. I just left home. Were you middle child, last child? Where would you? Uh, four boys, one girl, so I was the youngest boy. Youngest boy. Hmm. Where do you think that independent spirit comes from? Do you think it's... I think it's from my dad. Yeah. I look at photos of my dad. There's a photo I've got from 19... I think it's 1932, I think it was. Mm. And dad, in that time, you know, in those days, the women would wear the big hats and recovered and a man would wear like nearly a one-piece swimsuit. There's a photo of my father with all the vintage cars and everything. Uh. And he's walking down with like nearly a pair of, not Speedos, but shorts. Yeah. Fit, walking down the street, like as a photo. And I'm, and it's- Owning it it with swag. Yeah, in a in a in an almost post slightly post Victorian age. Yeah, he just he felt comfortable in his body and all that something. He was he apparently was a bantamweight boxer in the navy and all something, but he had this thing and I'm like, did I get this from my dad? Where he just yeah, he didn't care what people thought and even he was pretty hard dad, but he come from a different era and now I understand him a lot more now. But uh, dad was the discipline, but he was also the affection. You know, so how yeah. old was how old were you when he passed? I was in Sydney. Um, uh, I would have been about thirty or so. Yeah, right. Still young. Yeah, it's still a young age to lose something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious because uh, you've been bold your whole working life. You've just been bold, big swinging for the fences choices. I always think to myself I've been lucky, hmm. but I kind of look back and I think, have I been lucky, or I've, I've just. I've been, my life has gone in places. Sometimes I've been in a place where I, like when I left SeaWorld and I was working uh, in the aged care and I left and I was Mr. Mum, I used to deliver pizzas at night. Yeah. My wife at the time was earning more money than so I was Mr. Mum, but I was, but I was okay with that because I was contributing to the family. But then I realized I needed to do something like get back into it. And then when I saw that ad, I thought I, I needed to get back to that family. I needed to get back to something I loved at the time. And I was so happy that I did it happened for me to come back to SeaWorld as a trainer yes. and it was such an amazing opportunity. And I remember the day I got the phone call that I got the job as a tiger handler and I was at SeaWorld and I rang me and I said, you've just changed my life. It was something, oh my God, this Fantastic. is amazing. Yeah. So I was very fortunate. And when I, but in, and there was a time when I left my, uh, Tiger Island, I left and I went away, I ended up getting into construction work because mm-hmm. I got, uh, I realized where I left Tiger Island wasn't where I wanted to be and I was in a place where I just wanted to just do something different and I got into construction work and I did that and that was okay and I'd been away from the industry for a while and then I came back to SeaWorld um, initially again. If you didn't know you and you were reading your life off the page you would see this, this these career choices and these roles manpower dancer manpower MC show announcer sea world tiger handler polar bear keeper someone would think well and then personal trainer yeah i'm doing uh, training now I'm yeah training uh, people bodybuilder on the page you know one 
someone might be forgiven for thinking, well, there's not going to be much humility with this guy. Mm. And yet, as anyone would feel listening to you, you're all humility. How have you kept that in check? How, for a lot of people, their biggest enemy is ego. Mm. And how you don't seem to have ever... Or maybe you had a period where you were able to transcend it, but transcending ego is a real powerful thing. And even as you speak with so much love about these animals that, that you've been around, mm. there's, there's, there's this utter humility. Mm. Are, you, are you aware of that? No, not really. I don't. I, did, did you... I, ego is, as I said, from a very young age when I first started in the shows, if you had ego, that would have been cut yeah, down really quick. So I think that shaped me. Right. Because I was in manpower. I was in, in Vegas. I was touring. Yeah. Well, we did a show once in with 8,000 women in Holland right. in a room. That sounds, like, that's ter- a, that's a, that sounds terrible for yeah. you. But I can tell you right now, yeah. but no one had an ego. We performed a show. And then when I've come into SeaWorld and that, and it was a different environment, yeah. no one, even with announcing department, no one had an ego. And if you did, that got kind of shot down too. Your ego, yeah. if you walk on the stage, and we've had announcers that have thought they were better than what they are. And, yeah. and it, it depends on how that makes you... Uh, a person, even in the career that I'm now, I still do a little bit of animal training. Yes. I'm doing a bit of security. I'm doing personal training. And now I own a fashion boutique. Yeah, that's right. With my wife. Incredible. So, and I work in that fashion boutique in ladies' fashion. Wow. So um, I, I don't mind getting in selling ladies' clothes. Yeah. I don't mind getting and doing announcing. I don't mind getting in. I, I, I MC bodybuilding shows now. Um, and I travel to Melbourne and Sydney and what have you and do shows like that. And I'm on stage, but I'm meeting different people. They don't know my background, no. but they give me, I get respect from them because not so much of I demand it, but I try and do the best job I can. Yeah. And I find that if you do a good job, you keep a good attitude, you do get respect. You don't demand it, but you do get it. Yeah. And people, you know what I mean? But there's certain times in certain roles that you have to sometimes be a little bit different in forthright. your personality, forthright. Yeah. And some people like it, some people don't, because everything is not roses. But when you look back in life, and I'm now I'm 57 years old, nearly 60. Wow. And I look back in life and I think, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have met this person. If I didn't meet that person and left manpower and come to the Gold Coast, I wouldn't have started at SeaWorld. If I didn't have to start at SeaWorld, I would never have met the animals and be involved in that. If I'd never done that, I would never have... You know, I mean, there's so many times where I think of what... Everything has a, a position, and um, even now, I, I'm actually looking at myself and thinking, oh, where do I want to go and what am I doing? And I'm actually cool where I am at the moment, but you can get complacent in life. And I think to myself, am I being complacent or just, am I just happy? Yeah. I think I'm happy. That's fantastic. What a beautiful way to start to land, stick the landing here. That humility, and we've talked about it in the past in Park Life episodes, the humility is the gateway into learning because without humility you're not open to learning if your ego tells you there's nothing here for me to learn this is what i do nothing can get in and you've been able to keep that humility in in check but that's something i have to think you've got to think about that too you no one ever knows everything no you know training animal training is the one thing it taught me yeah there's not one way to train an animal no and there is no arriving with whatever craft or discipline you apply yourself to, whether it's music, whether it's, I imagine even whether, whether it's um, fitness and training. Yeah. There isn't any point where you arrive to the top of the mountain and no. say, there is nothing else here for me to know. I love that about I it. I do too, because it's a constant pursuit in whatever you're doing, because there yeah. is no point of arrival. No. And if you think there is, that's your ego in your ear. 
And in animal training, and some of the trainers over the years have taught me, is that, and some people will come in, it's not about saying you're doing something wrong. Some of the trainers that have trained me over the years have looked at me and, I, and, uh, and put me in a position where, because so, sometimes you need to fail to learn. Yes. So I've put me in a position where I'm doing something and they'll go, sort of say, oh, and it doesn't work out with the animal. And, I, and it's okay. And they've, instead of saying to me, oh, well, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. They said, how do you think that could have gone better? What do you think you could have done? Oh, well, I think I could have done this. Okay. Well, what if you try something like this? Would that work for you? And they, the way they've trained me is molding me and guiding me. And I've always said that to some people run a, a way where it's like a captain of a ship sitting downstairs and the ship's going off. It's like an animal. You can't allow them to head off for work one way yeah. and then all of a sudden try and pull them back. You've got to guide them. Yeah. And that's the way that a lot of the older trainers and, and as the trainers even to this day guide you. And that is what I do in, in even in doing security, even in personal training. I'm guiding someone. I'm not training someone. I'm teaching them how to train. Hmm. So they don't need me. Some people need you just to be there to have that reason to be at the gym. But I want to teach them how to train. And I'm still learning myself. I see stuff like, oh, I'm going to try that. Mm. That's the beauty of me as a trainer. Like I said, I'm 57 now, but I feel like I'm in a pretty good condition as I could probably go to lose a bit of a few pounds. But I'm at the point now where I don't worry about watching my diet. I just enjoy a glass of wine. I enjoy a meal. I enjoy my wife's an amazing cook. So (laughs) You're blessed. I am blessed. What's your juice? What keeps you motivated now? Like what gets you up out of bed, gets you to the gym? gets you to the security role that you currently have at SeaWorld, mm. gets you to the SEAL training role that you also mm. have at SeaWorld. Mm. So you've got those two plates spinning. What what gets you motivated? What do you tap into? I just love what I do. Yeah. I don't get up out of my bed and okay, everyone gets out of bed, oh God, it's early in the morning, whatever. But I enjoy doing what I do. I actually enjoy, and this is the funny thing about security at SeaWorld, and people don't get to see this. People come to SeaWorld or any theme park and see security and don't do this, but we're kind of, um, we meet every staff member every day as they come in. I enjoy that. I enjoy saying, hey, how are you? I'm their first contact. Some mm. of them come in and half asleep, and but as they leave, I'm their last contact as well. Mm. Sometimes I've had staff walk in crying and I've asked, are you okay? And they've opened up to me. Yeah. Some of them haven't, but it's a funny thing. You can build good relationships and I enjoy that connection. It's great. I, when I'm walking through the park, I don't look at myself as a person who's um, a security guard looking. I actually feel like I'm helping people. So they ask me, where's the toilets? Who, where's the shows? They'll ask me, oh, they come up and ask me, I'm like a PR. Yeah. Even the staff members will come in. I walk in, I say, Are you, is everything okay? Yeah, good. And I have a chat. I love that. You love connection. I love the social side of it as well. You, I, I love animal training. When yes, I'm on stage, yes. I love that where I can do it and I yes. see what the people get out of it. Yes. And I, I think that's you, whether it's dancing on the stage yep. in Vegas, working with tigers, sitting in a security booth, working in the ladies' fashion boutique, yeah. going to the gym, yeah. you love being in service and connecting with people. I think that's the whole thing, isn't it? Everything yeah. we're talking about, of everything I do, yeah. I love to see um, what people get out of what I do, yeah. even in security. And as I said, sometimes it's like even working an animal, I'll be helping and doing a sh- like a interaction with people. And if they're not doing it right, I have to sometimes say, hey, you can't, just let them know. But it's, I've learned sometimes give them guidance, boundaries, and then it makes it easier. You know what I mean? When you look back at your, your, your life, your theme park life specifically, mm. and I'm sure there's many, as I, I'll often say to people when I'm sitting with them, what's a memory that sticks out where you go, that's probably an apex of real pride. You go, hey, you know what, I'm really proud of that. Not at, at an ego level, where you just something touched you or a moment touched you. 
And you thought, oh. I'll never forget this. God. There's got to be a, one or two that stick out. Well, I guess you one, shared a lot. one is my children being born, as a lot of people yeah, would of course, say. Yeah. Watching them grow up and do what they do. I love that. So that was a moment, I think. Was, was there a park experience, do you think, that might stand out? Or a, a goal achieved in one of the parks where you thought, look at this, I'm doing this thing now? <laughs> I've had quite a few. I think even walking on stage at, when I'm doing the, when I was an announcer, that was a moment of when I'm on stage at the ski shows, you know, and, and announcing that. Sometimes I look around at the crowds, you know. There's times where I've walked on at Seals and I've walked on. There's been times sometimes it's not about being on stage sometimes yeah, it's just the small things yeah like sometimes we've been uh out the back training something and, we, and then the animal accomplishes something that you've been working for so long and you just feel that enjoy for the animal they've succeeded mm. so that those little things there's so many little things mm. i can't say there's been one defining moment um that i've say wow this is because I'm not like that too. I, I wouldn't know. stand there and go, I finally made it. Yeah. I'm here. Because I don't ever think that. <laughs> I think it's wonderful. Our last question. Sorry, I, I, does that make sense? Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's a perfect answer. Yeah. If the Graham Drake of today could go back and talk to that kid that didn't feel great about mm. where he was at and was a mm. little bit of a loner by the sounds of it and was not doing great at school and where am I going to be at? Mm. And then if you could go back in time and just have a conversation for two minutes with that kid now what what advice would you give him um don't worry it'll all work out <laughs> and it has yeah somehow it has thanks for sitting down for this mate it's a epic uh industry life and it really is very singular even now when i'm looking at you i can see you're you're moved a little bit as well mm. because it really is who you are you're you're a man of great humility and i think the the terrific inspiration of your story is back yourself. Yeah. Follow your joy. Yeah. And see what might be possible. I'll often say to my kids, if you do nothing, no thing happens. Mm. If you do something, something happens. I'm sure I'm quoting Dr. Wayne Dyer there, but it's, <laughs> but it's a beautiful, simple approach to life. It is. Do, do it and let's see what happens. And that seems to be the whole part of your life the whole story of your life mm. i'm going to see what happens and i've been through some big ups and some really downs course, in my course, life of course but i know that it everything will work out yeah in the end and does that pull you through those times of adversity yeah because you know that the bad times are like good times they don't last no you you could be in that moment and at the time you don't you're thinking you know you've everyone has emotions and i've felt like oh my god why has this happened yeah but then after I've just kept going after day and I, now that I look back and, and I've said to someone the other day, when I was younger and I was doing the shows and whatever, I was part of like, when you talk about a movie, I was a character in a movie doing all those things. Right now, and this might be age, but I'm kind of sitting back watching things now. Yeah. I'm watching people, how they react, how they talk to each other, hmm. um, how they are. I'm actually more of an observer now, although I'm still part of it. And I'm, I'm a lot more content yeah. and not emotionally connected in any of the things. Whereas before, you know, if something happened, I'll go, oh my God, you know. Uh, so that's where I am at the moment. I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, and I'm very, very happy in my relationship. I'm happy that my kids are doing good. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think that's a great thing about getting older. I'm finding the same thing. As we get older, 
I think the gift of aging, if you're open, is that you tend to relax a little more and you, uh, you give yourself a bit more room to breathe and you give yourself a break. I found that when I worked in the nursing homes, I talking bet. to those old people. I bet. And that's another story we could go into. <laughs> I but bet. I met a man who was, uh, he was a, uh, like he was in, he was an aircraft carrier. He sure. was the, whatever what they're called, who's in charge of an aircraft carrier. He's a, he's like the, a, uh, admiral? An admiral or a marshal. Yeah. Or and he's sitting there in this thing, he's got all these pictures on the wall, and he's just sitting in the bed, and he's in this nursing home, and he never got any visitors, other than his oh. wife, who was Lady someone. Wow. Like, and he passed, and the only reason I knew a lot about him is when he died, they had a thing in the bulletin about him, and I just thought this guy had a whole history and that, but he was so like happy where he was, he was just talking to me, and I used to go in Content. there. And, yep, yep, he was, he was content in his life, he's achieved so much, and you know, and uh, and it was, a, that was a, sorry to get back in it, but I was, it was a defining moment in my life of working in a nursing home. I got to meet some elderly people who had amazing lives, <laughs> and it was pretty cool, and they say, oh, why are you so, all these old people, well, you know, you've got so much knowledge. Well, they've had life. Yeah. You know? If we had a little more time, we could pack <laughs> yeah. in uh, a whole lot more. Yeah, we could. Thanks for sitting down and getting your story into the Park Life series. Thanks, Michael. Cheers, It was great. <laughs>